I'm going to read from Jonah chapter 3, 1 through 10, and then, and then pray. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence of that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are a great God, a loving God. You are a faithful God. You are a steadfast God. And you are a God that, who is in control of all, Heavenly Father. And I thank you for that. I thank you for your, your sovereignty and your love and your true care and concern for us, Heavenly Father. And, and Lord, I, I confess my uh, judgmentalism, Heavenly Father, to you, Lord, and that, that I don't run to you as fast as I should. And I confess it for us, Heavenly Father, Lord, because, um, because you are a great God, Lord. And there is no, I have no right, we have no right to be judgmental, Heavenly Father. And, and Lord, I thank you. I thank you for being the good God you are, because, Lord, whatever good there is, in me and in us and in this world, Lord, is this because of you, and I thank you for that goodness, Heavenly Father. And, and Lord, I thank you for um, the workers this morning in Roots and Nursery, Heavenly Father. I just, I just pray that you'd be with them and the, and the children, Heavenly Father, and, and, and may they love them well and may they be taught well, Heavenly Father. And, and Lord, I, Lord, these, these are um, interesting and, and maybe crazy times or different times, Lord, with the, with the coronavirus virus, Heavenly Father, and there's so much fear, Heavenly Father, and, and, and upheaval, Lord. And, and I pray that um, we would know that this world is not our home, Heavenly Father, that you, would, that you would just calm hearts, Heavenly Father, that you would be those that are not with us today, Heavenly Father, that are home, and just, just be with them and, and, and work in their lives, Lord. And I pray for protection, Lord, spiritually, Heavenly Father. I pray that you'd give us peace and wisdom, Lord. And Lord, this world is not our home, and I thank you for that. I thank you for your promise um, of eternal life, Lord, to be with you forever, Heavenly Father. And Lord, I pray for Pastor's message, Lord. I, I pray that your spirit um, would be here, Lord. I pray that our hearts would be open and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
Thank you, Bill. Well, as you can tell from the reading, we continue this week in our brief series of messages from the Old Testament book of Jonah. So far, just to kind of get us caught up, if you haven't been here, we've seen that after initially disobeying God's call to speak a word of judgment on this city of Nineveh, Gentiles, Assyrians, the prophet Jonah had a change of heart. It didn't take him very long. God made him an offer he couldn't refuse by nearly drowning him, sending him a giant fish to swallow him, and three days later, vomiting him up on dry land. Having been severely disciplined, God sends Jonah back to Nineveh, and the resulting ministry is what Bill read in chapter 3. Much to Jonah's chagrin, as we'll see in chapter 4, his ministry while in Nineveh had a miraculous impact on the pagan enemies of God and the pagan enemies of Israel who live there. Because this story is so familiar to us, and it is for most of us here, we're probably not nearly as sensitive as we could be, maybe should be, to the absolutely stunning nature of the events recorded in this chapter. This is one of the most unbelievable chapters in the Scripture. What happens in chapter 3 to me and to many others is not nearly as hard, it's much harder to believe than it is to believe that God could create a great fish and swallow Jonah. I mean, I watch nature programs. I watch Richard Attenborough. I mean, I know all about the crazy things in nature. There's all sorts of strange things, but the human heart, that's so hard. And what happens here is just stunning. Uh, as we work our way through this account of Jonah's ministry, we can find at least three major surprises and a lot of smaller supporting surprises. The first surprise is Nineveh's unexpected receptivity to a Jewish prophet. Nineveh's unexpected receptivity to a Jewish prophet. That truth alone is absolutely jaw-dropping, so we need to think about it. Before we get into the text, what is it that we already know about these people from the Assyrian Empire that we've talked about before? First of all, we know this was a powerful enemy of Israel, okay? It was a nation that within 50 years would destroy Israel and drag away all its inhabitants back to Assyria. This was a powerful enemy, okay? The fact that they would even give the time of day to much less radically repent before a prophet of the God of Israel is astonishing. We mustn't forget that the Assyrians, of course, as we said, were Gentiles. These were pagans. They worshipped many gods, none of whom were the Hebrew god, Yahweh. And in the ancient Near East, each ethnic people group, sometimes that was by tribe, sometimes that was by nation, depending on how it was arranged, they had their own tribal gods. The main Assyrian gods had names like Assur, Ishtar, Shamash, Elil, and Ye. okay? So the Assyrians had doubtless heard of the Hebrew God, probably knew something of the belief system, but they were in no way spiritually inclined to take special notice of the God of the Jews. It's 500 miles away. Jonah never mentions by name the Hebrew God. He never says Yahweh in the original he instead uses a more generic name for God, which the Ninevites would have been able to relate to their gods as well. So even though he's generic in terms of the God that he's talking about, that doesn't explain why the Ninevites would even pay attention, much less seriously be impacted by a Jewish prophet proclaiming judgment on their city. 
When Jonah as a Jew comes and threatens the Ninevites with judgment, disaster from verse 10, you would expect that they might take that as an insult or maybe even as a direct challenge. If they were in judgment of danger of judgment, why on earth would a Jewish prophet be sent to them to herald their doom? Okay? They had pagan prophets of their own. Why hadn't their gods spoken to them about their national sin? That would have made a whole lot more sense to them. But beyond all those factors as to why the Ninevites should have given Jonah a cold shoulder, there is the unlikelihood of Jonah himself being greatly used by God. We know from what we read in chapter 4 that none of what transpired in chapter 3 was owing to anything about Jonah. Okay? The author makes it clear Jonah didn't care a nickel for these people in Nineveh. In fact, he hated them. He wanted them to suffer God's harsh judgment. It's not wild speculation to assume that Jonah's strong animosity toward the Ninevites at least in some way bled back into his ministry to them. We can be pretty certain that Jonah was not prophesying with his eyes ringed with tears of compassion, giving heartfelt, impassioned pleas for repentance. The author is transparent. Jonah does the minimum ministry required to keep him from a return trip in the belly of the fish. That's where he is. The specific message recorded in the book of Jonah is in verse 4, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, we can't be certain that Jonah only uttered those words, eight words in English, five words in Hebrew, He may have at times been a bit more complete in the message. The point of the author in the Hebrew narrative is to communicate that Jonah didn't give any prophetic speeches explaining in detail what were the sins of the Ninevites, okay? They clearly pick up from their own understanding later on what the sin was that they were talking about, but he doesn't say it specifically. Neither does Jonah provide any specific detail about what he means by this threat of God's judgment. There's nothing in detail about this. He doesn't warn them about God raining down fire and brimstone on them or bringing a famine or earthquake or cursing their crops or anything like that. He just repeats again and again this vague and brief threat that the God of the universe would rain down judgment on Nineveh. Now, prophetic messages, it was understood among all the ancient Near Eastern people, always had the implied possibility of mercy if the people repented. That was the nature of prophetic ministry, and that was the nature of God's prophets as well. In the Old Testament, this is stated explicitly in Jeremiah chapter 18. God says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. It's interesting that he says, any nation. So this is not just Israel and Judah. This is any nation. Another reason we can be surprised at Nineveh's response is we're not even sure if Jonah's message was heard by most of the Ninevites. From the text, we just don't understand. There's considerable discussion among the scholars about what the author means in verse 4, where he says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. What does began mean in light of verse 3, where we read that this grady was three days' journey in breadth? Okay? Scholars disagree on the question, but many hold that Jonah was only going partway into the city 
proclaiming the word of judgment before a terrified group of people spread this message secondhand to all the other Ninevites. We don't know, but that's very possible. The point of all this skepticism about the story is simply that if this account weren't part of inspired sacred scripture, no one would believe this. This is an unbelievable message that this would have happened. If you would have told any of the Israelites before this happened that this was going to happen, if you would have told any of the Ninevites that this was going to happen the way it's related, all of them would have said, you're insane. This would never happen. And yet, it did happen. That's the first surprise. Second surprise is that Nineveh's extreme repentance. The first surprise is that Nineveh would be receptive at all. The second surprise is that they would repent in the extreme manner that they did. One of the great ironies of this book, and it's filled with irony, is the response of the Ninevites to this Jewish prophet is much, much more penitent and contrite than perhaps any response the Jews gave to their own prophets. That's amazing. Okay? The Jews threw Jeremiah into a muddy cistern and left him for dead when he puts a word of judgment on them. The prophet Isaiah never once in 40 years saw anything like this kind of contrition from the Jews. And he was speaking powerful and anointed words. Ezekiel would have been thrilled to have seen his fellow Jews repent as dramatically as did these pagan idol worshipers from Nineveh. In verse 5 we read, And the people of Nineveh believed God. The Ninevites were struck to the heart that they had been living deeply wicked lives and that they were in grave danger of the unspeakable judgment of God. What's interesting here in this response to the message begins with the general population of Nineveh. That's where the response begins, with the general folks, okay? The king gets involved later, but this was a top, not a top-down response. It was a down-to-top response. The people, the unimportant, but also the wealthy, from the, the greatest of them to the least, they, as a group, were all powerfully inclined to repent from, this judge, from the message of judgment. We read in verse 5 that it was the people, this general populace, who called for a fast and put on sackcloth, Okay? This wasn't the religious leaders. It wasn't the king at this point. It starts with the folks, okay? Fasting and sitting under a burlap sack, which is what that means, sackcloth, that was a demonstration of intense grief over your sin and that you were repenting of it, okay? Sackcloth and ashes, both of those. When this prophetic warning reaches the ears of the king, he doubles down. He intensifies the response that the people had initiated. His response to this is as radical and sincere an indication of repentance as any authority figure in the Old Testament in any place. This pagan king took four extreme measures according to verse 6. You can count them as we read them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. So he gets off his throne. Okay, he, that's that says something very specific in the culture, okay? He's not just saying he, he just sat down somewhere else. No, his point is he's, he's going through an extreme act of humiliation. A king's throne and a king's robe were the two major signals, symbols excuse me, of a king's authority. And by ditching both of those, he is lowering himself from his place of authority to a place of humble submission. In another display of humility from the king, he follows the lead of the people here. 
and he covers himself with sackcloth and sits in ashes. So he's placing himself on the same level as those people that he ruled. Okay? He joins with them in submission to this God who would threaten him with his judgment. His own personal response was as a fellow sinner. Now, the reason that's impressive is because ancient Near Eastern kings always maintained several degrees of separation from the people to show their authority. Okay? But this king makes a point of humbly identifying with the people before this Hebrew prophet. That's astonishing. This is amazing. In addition to his personal response, which we just read, he also pens a legal response, a proclamation. And it says, And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, this is verse 7, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, but let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and for the violence that is in his hand. Again, this is incredibly extreme. This is a radical response to a Hebrew prophet from any ruler, much less a foreign ruler. That's unprecedented in the Old Testament. You won't find it anywhere else except right here. The Jews had lived under humble kings like King Josiah. They saw the king, the sins of the people, and so they instituted sweeping reforms, but nothing like this, not like this call to repentance from the king. The king calls a fast, and it's a very unusual fast in a couple respects. First of all, he tells the people neither to eat or drink. Okay, very unusual. To prohibit drinking. Because as we all know, you can go without food for, depending on who you are, several weeks maybe. But you can only go a few days without water. So this is really an extreme fast. Second, he calls this extreme fast for the animals as well. Okay? Can you imagine the sound of the bleeding of all of these livestock after they'd missed a meal or two? Or their water for the day, okay? Even more strange is verse 8 where the king's proclamation also calls both man and beast to be covered with sackcloth. I mean, imagine wandering around Nineveh and the surrounding environs and seeing all the sheep and all the goats and all the pigs, they had pigs, they're, they're Gentiles, adorned with sackcloth on their backs. Imagine being someone who has to go out and put those sockcloth on those animals. It's strange. So you can imagine the sound of the bleating of all of these livestock after they missed a meal or two, and they're wandering around with sackcloth on their backs. Why would the king call for that bizarre inter- intervention? And it is. It's bizarre. You don't see it anywhere else. Well, we have to remember that this prophetic threat from God was that Nineveh would repent or it would be overthrown. In verse 10, they interpret that as disaster on Nineveh. Well, the kind of destruction implied in this threat would certainly have included the animals. And in any ancient culture, if the animals die, you die. So the point here is not that anyone believed that the animals were guilty of sin and needed to repent. It's just that this coming destruction would have included the animals, and this sackcloth was a plea for God to spare the animals along with the people of Nineveh, okay? But they would do something that extreme, that bizarre, is a testament to how terrified they must have been. Also in verse 8, the proclamation calls for both man and beast to call out mightily to God. How does a beast call out mightily to God? 
But that's the proclamation. This is an order of the king, all right? Beasts, crawl out mightily to God. Again, what he's saying is he's hoping that God will hear the bleeding of these animals along with the crying of the people as a way of penitence and contrition. You see, they're mightily calling out to God. In, when you look up at it, the, the picture that's painted by the author is that every aspect of this expression of repentance was extreme, unusual, strange. This was, this was simply not a heartfelt request for God to show mercy. This was a desperate, mighty, radical plea for him to spare these people. In the second half of verse 8, we see what is at the heart of God's concern for the Ninevites, and it too is a surprise unless you're very familiar with this text. The proclamation reads, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the evil that is in their hand. We're going to look at this a whole lot more closely in just a moment, but suffice it to say for now that the cruel oppression and the violence we know that the Assyrians expressed outwardly to their nation's enemies, they also showed to each other. The king's final response of humility is in verse 9. We read the final sentence of the proclamation. It says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now this question, who knows, is again an expression of great humility. This is because the king is humbly admitting that even with all of these extreme expressions of repentance, the Ninevites can in no way be sure that this will induce God to show them mercy. After all of these extreme expressions of contrition and brokenness over their sin, the king humbly admits that whether or not judgment is spared is solely up to God's mercy. So the most assurance that he can give his people as to the possibility of God's mercy is, who knows? Not very reassuring. This is humility. Now, historians tell us that about the same time Jonah was sent to Nineveh, we don't know the precise dates, several very ominous and terrifying things were happening in and around this city. During this time in history, Assyria had experienced a series of famines, plagues, revolts, and solar eclipses, which was a very grave concern for those people when the sun went away. We also know from history that these were seen as omens of far worse things to come. That was written in the history books. They saw those things that judgment is coming. Some have argued that this was God's way of preparing the ground for Jonah. The state of affairs would have been made by the state of affairs would have made both rulers and subjects unusually attuned to the message of the visiting prophet. If that were true, that would explain this amazing response to Jonah. But that does not in any way diminish the glory of God in this. Not one whit. Okay? It's still quite possible that that had no effect on any of this. It's still possible that God, in his sovereign decree, supernaturally caused a sense of terrible dread to creep into the hearts of these pagans. He can do that. When we read in the Old Testament the conquering of the Canaanites, more than once God supernaturally caused those pagans to become fearful and confused and terrified so much so that they began fighting one another. So we know he can do that to pagans, okay? God is just as glorified if he works through so-called natural means like solar eclipses and natural disasters that were seen within the culture as powerful omens of approaching judgment which prepared them for Jonah's ministry. Either way, God is the ultimate cause of the powerful response of the Ninevites. Either way, he's causing this to happen and either way, he's equally glorified. 
The third surprise in this chapter is God's mercy toward the Ninevites. God had called Jonah to preach judgment to Nineveh, and we see from chapter 4 that he selfishly worried that God might choose to relent from his judgment if they repented. So he knew that was possible, but his hatred of the Ninevites, probably fueled by an expectation that God would pour down his wrath, set him up to be happy here. He doubtless fantasized that these wicked pagans were going to be destroyed by his God. So in that sense, this was a bit of a surprise, this mercy of God. Because we know this story, the big surprise for us today at God sparing Nineveh is, however, not that he honored the Ninevites' plea for repentance. The big surprise here, if you read this carefully, is the specific reason for God's concern about Nineveh in the first place. What was it about Nineveh that he wanted to have them repent about anyway? Okay? And that is, what specifically do the Ninevites repent of that prompted God to back off on his threat of overthrowing Nineveh? They show great concern, remorse, contrition over God's main concern for them, which is to quote the king, let each person repent of his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. There it is. That's what, that's what God is concerned about. Okay? That's the Hebrew narrator's way of saying this is what God is concerned about. See, it's really important that we know that this is what the Ninevites were repenting of. This verse tells us that this was not a call to corporate repentance from Nineveh for being so cruel to other nations. That's not here. Neither was this a generic call to repentance for all the general evils they had committed. He's very specific here. It was a specific call that each individual Ninevite would repent of the acts of violence that is in his or her hands. Okay? That means that this was not a call for Nineveh to stop being geopolitically brutal to stop beating up all the nations. It didn't work very well. They beat up Israel in 50 years. What God was concerned about, and this is astonishing, is the violence the Ninevites were inflicting on other Ninevites. A lot of people study this book. They never pick up on that, even though it's right here. And the reason we don't pick up on it is because we're not attuned to the issue that he's talking about here. We know it for two reasons. The wording of the proclamation clearly says it. Individual violence, not corporate. Pronouns are individual, in Nineveh. Second, we know this is God's concern because the Ninevites didn't repent of their pagan worship. Okay? That means that this was not a call for the Ninevites to leave their pagan worship of other gods because when they repented, they didn't do that. This is not a call to repent of paganism and convert to Judaism. They remained idolatrous pagans. They didn't undergo circumcision. They didn't begin sacrificing to Yahweh. There is zero indication that they did anything other than repent of their interpersonal violence with one another. Do you see what this means? Again, to us today, this is the most amazing surprise of all. That is, that God calls one of his Hebrew prophets to journey 500 miles to his enemy, the Ninevites, to issue a call to repent. And the call to repent is not geopolitical, it's not corporate, it's internal and it's personal to pagans. That means that God calls his prophet to address the sin of the internal violence within the city of Nineveh. And that means that God is calling for social 
justice here within a nation that does not even recognize him as their God. And that means that God is concerned about issues like domestic violence and justice for the poor and oppressed because that's what's included in this call. And that means that this concern for social justice is part of God's very nature. And that is perhaps the most important truth we should be learning about this story of Jonah. And most evangelicals absolutely miss it. To many evangelical believers, social justice is just not on their radar screen, which is why they miss this. Evangelicals often have an uneasy relationship with social justice, giving aid to those who are oppressed, who, those who are in need in some way that is not spiritual. Okay? Part of the reason why evangelicals are uneasy with this is because we've seen the abuses of liberal denominations that long ago abandoned the notion of working to convert people to Christ. Okay? Those professed Christians think of missionary activity only as helping people with material and social and psychological needs. The evangelical church has seen that and rightly been repulsed by it. That's not where we want to be. That's not what the Bible says. So you often hear people who are evangelical say things like, what good does it do to feed somebody well and teach them to balance their checkbook and then let them go to hell? That's ridiculous. The overwhelming priority has to be addressed is their spiritual needs. And then you can focus on material needs as they have time and resources to do. Okay? That sounds right. That sounds right to many evangelicals who've been so put off by the so-called missionary activity that excluded any real confrontation with the gospel. Okay? We have to be careful, though. We have to be careful that in our desire to distance ourselves from a godless understanding of ministering to those outside the church, we don't at the same time distance ourselves from what the Bible clearly teaches. Tim Keller reminds us in his book on mercy ministry, that kind of narrow focus on evangelism is not at all what Jesus teaches in his parable of the Good Samaritan. There the emphasis is on being a good neighbor and showing God's love, and nowhere in the story is evangelism even part of the equation. It was a good Samaritan. He didn't even have good news. That doesn't mean that we should feel freedom to overlook that eternal component of mercy ministry. That's not the point at all. It just means that what Jesus is concerned about is not simply winning the lost. He's concerned more broadly to revealing to the world what God is like. When we went through the upper room discourse, we saw that burden again and again and again, that they might know that you are the Father, that they might know you sent me. Okay? God is concerned that he be revealed. Jesus has called the church to reveal his heart to the world. And as we see very clearly in Jonah chapter 3, God is very much concerned with what many would call social justice. Read the book of Amos if you want to see God's heart as it relates to the people of Israel. It's all over there. The story of Jonah reveals that God is so concerned about this internal violence in Nineveh that he's willing to send a rebel prophet 500 miles to a foreign country and then chase him down, almost drown him, and send him back by fish courier on a three-day journey before calling him back to Nineveh. That's a lot of trouble for him to go through. And why does he do it? Because the Ninevites were oppressing one another. And he wanted them to repent of it. Is that the way we understand the message of Jonah? God's sovereignty, his mercy on his enemies, his mercy on a rebel prophet. The book reveals all of those things about God, but it also reveals that God cares about violence and oppression in all societies. 
That tells us it's part of God's heart to minister to those who have needs that are not just spiritual, but also social, material, and psychological. Because that is God's heart. That means that if we're God's children, we also ought to be hurting for those who are oppressed with material needs, not just spiritual needs. Whatever our objections may be regarding the specifics of the distribution, and I have several, we are blessed to live into a nation where the government offers forms of assistance to those who are down and out. But if we have God's heart as it relates to the poor and oppressed, we will not be satisfied with simply letting the federal bureaucracy do it all because so much of what they can do simply cannot address the core needs of the person, spiritual or material. And we all know that if we've helped. It's important for us to realize that this emphasis on social concern, this is not some sort of trendy thing that the church needs to do today. This has been the concern of the church for its history. Larry Hurtado details what it was about the early church that caused it to grow so explosively in a pagan culture that is very much like the one we live in. He gives five elements of the life of the early church that comprised what he called the social project. These were first, they were multiracial and multiethnic. Second, they were highly committed to caring for the poor and marginalized. Third, they were non-retaliatory, marked by a commitment to forgiveness. Fourth, they were strongly and practically against abortion and infanticide. And fifth, they were revolutionary in regard to the ethics of sex. Which means if we're faithful as a church to do what God did, we're going to offend people on the right and the left. These elements were not just part of some grand strategy to reach the Roman Empire. It was just the way they lived out their biblical value system. Some of those elements feel liberal to evangelicals today. Ethnic diversity, caring for the poor. And some of them feel more conservative, like the sexual ethic and opposing abortion and infanticide. But as they were faithful to live out those values... And as the culture saw the way they loved one another, it gave them a powerful opportunity to preach the gospel to people who were pagans and who worshipped many gods, like the Ninevites. In the months to come, Lord willing, you will be hearing more about the mercy ministry of North Shore and what that means for how we as a church live out our faith. But as you hear that, know that this is not because there's a few people at North Shore God has sent here who have a heart for that sort of thing. The reason some believers have a heart for that kind of ministry is because they're reflecting God's heart for the poor and the oppressed. The reason that we're forming a new mercy ministry here at North Shore is because we want to reflect the heart of Jesus. Again, Tim Keller is absolutely true to Scripture when he writes, Mercy to the full range of human needs is such an essential mark of being a Christian that it can be used as a test of true faith. Mercy is not optional or addition to being a Christian. Rather, a life poured out in deeds of mercy is the inevitable sign of true faith. How are we doing in this area? If we were to be examined under that standard of faith, how would we hold up? We see God's heart of mercy on open display through the effort that God went through in his mission to Nineveh, which converted no one to Judaism, but did result in a greater degree of social justice in Nineveh, and he withheld justice from them. If, by God's grace, you reflect concern for the poor and socially oppressed, then let us know. You can be part of this mercy ministry. Get in on the ground floor. And if you're wondering if our social concerns for justice in some way interferes with our efforts to reach the lost, just remember that the early church won scores and scores of people to Christ as they lived out the heart of God in the lost pagan culture. May God give all of us the grace to display His heart 
seen in the book of Jonah and in the life of Jesus for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the Word of God. Thank you, God, that you open our eyes through it, that you show our areas of blindness. And Father, you know, for most of my Christian life, for most of my time as a pastor, I have been very much blind to social justice. I was always suspicious of it. It was always people who I frankly didn't agree with at all theologically who were very concerned about it, and so... I just distanced myself from it. I thought I'd do the real spiritual thing of giving the gospel to people. Father, you don't make that kind of division. You just don't make those distinctions. Father, help us not to either. Father, help me help North Shore Church to be a church, especially in this neighborhood. There are so many needy people in this neighborhood, people who need stuff, and they need Jesus. And Father, help us to know what that looks like and what the ministry of this church can look like. Father, if there are people here for whom this is a message where they're resonating and saying, this is my heart, God, help them to join. If there are people for whom this is still suspicious, this feels weird, this feels strange, God, help them to look into the text. Help them to look at the ministry of Jesus and see what was important to him. Father, we need you. We can't do anything. We cannot expend the energy and the time and the patience and endure the hassles that come when you're trying to help needy people who are needy for a reason. Help us to do that, God, so that we might show forth the heart of Jesus Christ and in so doing, bring glory to him. We pray this for his sake. Amen.